I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Sean Acor, one of the kindest men you'll ever meet because he practices what he preaches. He and his wife, Michelle, are carving out new territory in the latest science on how positive thinking can literally change the trajectory of our lives. Sean is going to tell us about the life-altering power of a positive mind. Wow, I am so thrilled and honored to be here. This is incredible. I'm so grateful to be surrounded by so many kindred spirits. I'm on stage with all my heroes. (laughs) It's um, this is an absolute thrill. It's it's just it's stunning for me. Um, I you know. I'm, I'm in a building right now, two minutes from where my mom and dad met each other, fell in love, and, and they had me. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally, literally would not be here if it weren't for them right now. And my, my mom is joined here today. I, I don't know where she is. There, there's my mom right now. She's sitting. A, she's appropriately in row O. <laughs> so as I go... <laughs> So go say hi to her, but uh, she's great. She's sitting next to Amy the Unicorn from the TED Talk, if you know Amy the Unicorn. But I, uh, I, I just say, I have to say that this is an, an absolute honor. You know, last February, I, uh, my beautiful wife, Michelle Gielen, was pregnant with my little son, Leo. And she said, you've been traveling a lot. You can't go anywhere in February unless Oprah calls. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, she did. <laughs> Four days after Leo was born and we were out at the hospital, I was in Oprah's backyard talking about happiness research, (laughs) which was incredible. It's incredible because the other reason I'm grateful to be here today is when I first went off to college myself to start collecting debts, my father was... My father was buoyed by the idea that someday I might come back and I might be a doctor or lawyer or banker, something he thought would make sense. And when I came home from college and told him, Dad, I want to study the science of happiness, (laughs) he sat me down. (laughs) My father is a neuroscientist at Baylor University down in Waco, Texas. And he told me that the average scientific paper, the average scientific journal article, is only read on average by seven people total. which is pretty depressing for a researcher to hear because I know that that statistic also includes my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a tragedy because we've, we've learned research over the past decade which literally transforms what it means to be human. We're living through twin revolutions right now. We're living through a technological revolution that allows us to have information at our fingertips at every moment, smartphone and smart watches, but hidden behind that revolution is a more powerful one. Not a technological revolution, it's a human revolution that the super soul community is actually leading. What you're, 
that revolution is based upon research we've been finding that as we've been able to peer behind the curtain to see what the human brain is doing as we're constructing our beliefs, as we're constructing a picture of the world, as we're constructing happiness, it turns out if you were sitting in a high school science class right now, we'd be teaching you that you are your genes and your environment. Right? That you're, bo you're born with certain genes that predispose you to intelligence or creativity or happiness or obesity, and it's whatever happens to you in this world. That's your environment. It's what happens to you. So we live under the victimhood of our genes and our environment when we talk about happiness, when we talk about the course of our life. But what this research has actually been showing us, why this research is creating a revolution, is because it's breaking the tyranny of our genes and environment over our levels of happiness and the trajectory of our life. What we've been finding is that scientifically, happiness could actually be a choice even when life is difficult. You don't have to just... You don't have to just be your genes and your environment. We could transform our lives at any point. We could trump not only our genes, but eight decades of experience to actually no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There is power in this research. There's power. Now, why are we talking about science, right? This is a Super Soul Sunday, right? I'm on stage. But the reason we're talking about science is because you know, I, I, get, I get emails or people go on Facebook sometimes and they say, I don't need to know any of the science stuff because, you know, I get this already. You know, like I already, I, I know this in my heart, right? Or this is something I can accept upon belief, which I love and I find that to be wonderful. But for those of us who have sometimes had our faith shaken, when sometimes we wonder if our belief, uh, our behavior actually matters when we're trying to create positive change in this world, if we're wondering if we can actually change the trajectory of our life, then this research is actually for us because this research doesn't lead away from our beliefs. It doesn't lead away from that. In fact, they actually go in exactly the same direction. What I want to talk about is, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an artist, but art informs my faith. It enriches my worldview. I'm not a great musician, but I need music. I need music within my life. And... You might not be a scientist, you might not be a scientist, but this can actually become part of your daily spiritual practice. Because what we've been finding is optimism is a daily spiritual practice. And when we do it, we can transform this world. But as soon as we start talking about happiness and optimism, everyone gets the wrong idea. Last year, I was out speaking to a group of CEOs here in Northern California, all CEOs of top software companies. And one of the CEOs that are leading this technological revolution, one of the CEOs offered to drive me to the airport to talk about how he could cascade this research out to his entire company using these e-courses and these digital interventions. I was so excited. I got into the CEO's really nice sports car and put on my seatbelt. He got on the other side, same car, immediately started talking to me about how his company's been growing so quickly, their stress levels have been rising. And while he was speeding towards the airport, that little bell was going off on his car, the seatbelt bell, and eventually it stopped going off. It got tired. And <laughs> I turned to him, I said, you don't, you don't wear seatbelts? He said, no, Sean, I listened to your talk. I love your research. I'm an optimist. Oh, no. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I'd love to work with you. <laughs> Optimism is great for a lot of things, but it doesn't stop cars from hitting us. It doesn't stop reality from impinging upon us. That's irrational optimism. And if we sugarcoat the present with our optimism, we make bad decisions for the future. We don't change the things we need to in this world. 
If we sugarcoat the present, we don't stop the discrimination we see. We don't stop the violence we see happening in this world. We don't stop the inequalities. What we need to do is do exactly what Oprah's been exhorting us to do for decades, which is to create rational optimism. Rational optimism does not start with rose-colored glasses. It starts with a realistic assessment of the present. It starts with realism, both of the good and the bad. That's why Brene Brown's work is so important, because she helps us to see both sides of the spectrum, to be realistic about where we are, but throughout that entire process, maintain the belief that our behavior matters, if linked to the people around us, if linked to the right people around us. And what we found is if people have that type of approach, we get a completely different type of outcome when we do this research, which has been amazing, because that, by the way, is not the message most people who are not here on the Saturday and getting to enjoy all these incredible speakers, that's not what their brains are being, uh, are, are being exposed to. If you turn on your smartphone, your brain is immediately bombarded by negative information as you read the news, right? Murder and corruption and diseases and natural disasters. And very quickly, your brain can say, you can talk about happiness for 25 minutes, but let's get back to reality. Yeah. Reality is mostly suffering. And if you're not suffering right now, don't worry, it's coming. <laughs> right? It's a skewed ratio. We know it's a skewed ratio. I've been so excited to ask you this question. How many of you here in the Super Soul community, how many of you over the past three years have decreased the amount of news that you consume because you felt like it had a negative effect upon you and your life? Look around in this world. This is not an ostrich approach. This is we need to decrease that noise so we can find the signal back to happiness within our lives. What we need to be able to do, I just did research with my beautiful wife, Michelle Geelan. We partnered up with Ariana Huffington, and we just found that three minutes, three minutes of watching negative news in the morning, we know affects your day immediately. But six to eight hours later, you're 27% more likely to report a negative day. That negative news is transforming the course of our day. And we need to do something different because it's creating, if you see my TED talk, the only thing I want to include from it is it's creating what we call the medical school syndrome, which if you know people have been through medical training during that first year of medical school, as you read through all those symptoms and diseases that can happen to a human being, <laughs> suddenly those brilliant doctors start realizing they have all of those symptoms and diseases. <laughs> They'll actually start manifesting the system. If you, get bored, if you get bored during my talk, you could just go on WebMD and just start reading through different diseases. And after a while, it's like a checklist. Dead hands, that's what I was feeling while he was talking. <laughs> I have a brother-in-law named Bobo, which is a whole other story we don't have time for here today. <laughs> but Bobo called me on the phone. Uh, Bobo was married to Amy the Unicorn <laughs> and became a pediatrician, so it's perfect. But Bobo called me on the phone from Yale Medical School, which is our rival, and he said, Sean, I have leprosy which even at Yale is extraordinarily rare. <laughs> but I had no idea how to console poor Bobo because he had just gone over an entire week of menopause. <laughs> what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us. It's the lens through which we view reality that changes our experience of it and our ability to create a better world for other people. Happiness doesn't stop us from change. It gives us a belief that change is actually possible, which I love, which is why I would love to do a brief experiment with you right now. You don't have to do any of my experiments. I'm not allowed to bring consent forms to talks anymore <laughs> after, after the electric shock problem we had a couple times ago. <laughs> but if you're willing to participate, all I need you to do, I've been so excited to do this with this group. All I need you to do is just please partner up with someone that you're sitting next to. Partner up in a pairs of two. Of course, pairs of two. Partner up in pairs. The only caveat is I'm legally required to tell you that you cannot partner up with someone that you're married to for this experiment or that you wish you were married to. <laughs> so move around if that's a problem, especially in this room. So does everyone have a partner? 
of non-marriageable material. <laughs> so here's what I need you to do. The person sitting closest to this side of the room, you're person number one in the pair. Person furthest from that side of the room, you're person number two in the pair. If you're front to back upstairs, the person closest to me is person number one. If neither of those apply, just pick one person to be number one. <laughs> so raise your hand if you're person number one for this experiment. Raise your hand if you're person number two. That is not the experiment. <laughs> I have to do this now because I did this experiment on Wall Street a few months ago, and it literally took that struggling bank five minutes to figure out who number one in the group was. <laughs> Which explains what's going on on Wall Street. So here's what I'm interested in. How many, of you, how many of you are psychology friends? You read a lot of psychology books, you have a psychology degree, you've read The Happiness Advantage. So great. So for my psychology friends, this is the emotional prime of the experiment. And for everyone else, this is, this is nothing. Over the course of your life, you've taken your genetic predispositions. You've built those genes up through your self-discipline and your self-control. You were able to pass the classes you needed to in, in school to apply yourselves to your families, to your work, to your lives, to your communities. What I'd love for you to do is use all that self-discipline and control that you've been cultivating for decades. I'd like you to use it to control your behavior for just seven seconds with your partner if you can. At eight seconds, you could do whatever you'd like to or with your partner. But for seven seconds, we need you to control yourself. So person number one, person number one, what we ask you to do in this experiment, Person number one, what we ask you to do in this experiment is to not get angry with person number two when they do to you what I'm about to tell them to do to you. <laughs> person number one, don't get angry, don't get sad. Please, please don't cry like the group a couple weeks ago. That was so embarrassing. That was at the Pentagon. So. What I need you to do is basically nothing with your partner. So person number one and two, please turn and face one another. Person number one, make sure you're within striking distance of person number two. <laughs> and person number one, just go neutral on the inside. Try to feel no emotions and try and think no thoughts. Person number one, don't move your hands from this point in the experiment, even to defend yourself from person number two. And person number one, just go neutral on your face. Show zero emotion on your face. No fear, no flinching, no frustration. Zero emotion. Once you're ready, person number one, using your decades of self-discipline and control to control your thoughts, your emotions, your hands, and your face, then person number two, please look at them. Make sure you're looking at them directly in the eyes. And for the next seven seconds, person number two, please smile genuinely and warmly, but directly up into the eyes of person number one while looking at them warmly and deeply. Ready? Go. <laughs> <laughs> and stop <coughs> and stop I don't know why you're clapping that was terrible <laughs> we're going to need to do that one more time now, my few psychology friends know you never repeat a psychology experiment, but let's just try it. Person number two, go neutral on the inside, feel no emotions, think no thoughts. Person number one, make sure you're looking at them directly in the eyes. And for the next seven seconds, it's your turn for retaliation. Look at them warmly and deeply while smiling at their eyes. Ready? Go. <laughs> And stop.
You can see why I was excited to do this with this community. <laughs> My favorite part about this experiment is as soon as I say stop, everyone relaxes as if that was a difficult task to do. <laughs> Some of you are like, I did it. You did nothing for seven seconds. <laughs> Failure in this experiment meant you smiled when I asked you not to. Success meant that you did not smile for the full seven seconds. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you failed miserably at this experiment by smiling when you were not supposed to be smiling. <laughs> Look at the room, that's incredible. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you successfully did what I asked you to for the full seven seconds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Triple it, five, so 100, so 100 liars. And we've got, <laughs> so and 1,500 people. So more than 90% of you cannot control yourselves for seven seconds. I've done this experiment now in 51 countries across the globe, and what we found is 80 to 85% of people worldwide cannot control themselves for the seven seconds of this experiment, which is incredible. I've done this with senior level bankers, all men, all in their mid-50s in Tokyo, Japan. Smile percentage, still in the mid-70s. Extraordinarily universal. I wanted to add one in because I had a, such a learning moment. Um, I made a mistake in one of the countries that I went to, um, and many of you are gonna figure out the mistake I made way before I did. But I was invited by the royal family in Abu Dhabi to get to give a talk on how we could build up positive leadership and optimism amongst women in the Middle East. Oh, you got it before I did. I did not get it. So I was so excited about this because I was so passionate about it. I started my talk with this experiment and halfway through realized that half of the 90% of the room was veiled for the smiling experiment which I thought of before I would not have done the experiment, but I'm so grateful I did because those incredible women in the room taught me something. They told me that the experiment still worked. You could see the smiles in the other woman's eyes. And the, the veil, despite the veil, the smile was equally contagious. What I love about this, incredible, right? It's incredible. The reason I wanted to show you this experiment, which is predictive of nothing, is it's illustrative of something that transforms what it means to be human. And we rarely get research like this. What we discovered is if you put me into an fMRI brain scan, scan my brain while I'm smiling, small parts of my brain will show activation saying, Sean, you're smiling, which we knew would happen. But if I stop smiling and you keep scanning and you flash a picture of one of you smiling in front of me, small little parts of my brain called mirror neurons will start to activate, right? And when those mirror neurons activate, they say, Sean, you're smiling. But I'm not smiling, you're smiling. Before I can stop myself, my brain drops a neurochemical many of you know called dopamine into my system, which raises my levels of happiness and enjoyment, and my face moves into a smile before I can stop myself. You've seen these. If you're looking at your partner here this morning while you were smiling at them, and their lips were quivering while they were trying not to smile, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> That should not be happening. No, <laughs> what's occurring there? What's happening there is their mirror neurons are fighting against their motor neurons. Your brain already thinks you're smiling. It's like, what's the problem here, face? Now, where this gets... <laughs> if you've ever spoken to a group of people before and one person starts to yawn and the other people start to yawn, that's not because you're boring. That can't possibly be it. I keep telling myself, what's happening there is... <laughs> As I see people in my visual field start to smile, my mirror neurons can say, I'm the one that's, uh, that's yawning. I can pick up the fatigue response of someone sitting all the way across the room. Now, where this gets fascinating, 15 strangers all waiting for a plane. They don't even know they're part of an experiment. They're just standing, waiting for their plane, and you introduce an undercover researcher to stand in the middle of them in a five-meter radius and just begin to bounce nervously in place. 
tap his foot impatiently on the ground, and look at his watch repeatedly with a frown on his face. Within two minutes of waiting for that plane or train, depending on the study worldwide, on average, seven to 12 of the 15 individuals will unconsciously start bouncing nervously in place and or tapping their foot on the ground and or look at their watch more than four times in a span of two minutes. If you don't believe me, this is one of the experiments you can try out yourself the next time you get on a plane. <laughs> if you want to spread stress and negativity to the people on your plane. Which is why I always do this one at a different gate. <laughs> but the reason I love this experiment is because it shows us not only do smiles and yawns spread, but it turns out negativity, stress, uncertainty, and anxiety we can pick up like secondhand smoke. Yep. You don't even have to be the one smoking to have the negative health effects. The same thing is true with how other people process your world, right? You can be an incredible optimist. You can be here surrounded by these incredible optimists, but you're going to go back out into a world after you leave here today where that would not be the mode message, right? That's not what most people are actually saying. And our brains can pick up on that negativity and stress and uncertainty. So as soon as I tell people this outside of this room, they make the mistake. The mistake is, well, fine, here are all the people I'm cutting out of my life. <laughs> not hanging out with that guy. I'm defriending her on Facebook. I don't need to see those posts, right? <laughs> After this talk, when I get home, I'm not even going to look at this person, which is awkward because I live with them. <laughs> and if that's the response somebody's doing, they're eliminating social connection. And you get it. You get it. They've just alienated the very people we should be helping within the system, right? The reason I want to tell you about this mirror, these mirror neurons is it gives you incredible amounts of power and shows how much change is possible. We're taught you can't change other people. Happiness is an individual choice, but we are influencing people all the time. And if we're not conscious about it, then they're influencing us. But if you find a way to buffer your brain using this research against the negativity, stress, and uncertainty and create a single positive behavioral change, we can watch that, watch that positive behavioral change wirelessly ripple out and tip other people's brains towards the belief that our behavior matters towards the belief that change is possible and that happiness could actually be a choice. The reason this changes everything is it means that as we look at you now, there's no wires connecting you. You're gonna scatter across the globe after this, right? There's no wires connecting us, but our brains have been designed to be wirelessly connected through a mirror neuron network. We don't process the world, we co-process happiness. We co-process optimism and belief. And if we can find some way of being able to create a positive effect upon other people, we can ripple out not only what our brain is doing, but get other people, our family members, our friends, our communities to do that as well. And this research, I mean, we, we've, seen it, we've seen it work. Actually, when we went to a group of hospitals. Hospitals have a very difficult time because people don't want to go there because of you know, sickness and disease, so they don't get the care that they need to. But how do you fix it? It's a hospital. So what we did is we went into places that have great customer service. We went to one of the hospital chains. We went to the Ritz-Carlton. And one of the things that they do is if you walk within 10 feet of an employee at the Ritz-Carlton, they they're trained to make eye contact and smile at you. Within five feet, they're trained to say hello. It's actually really fun to go in and out of those spheres with them. <laughs> even if you're not staying there. And what we did was <laughs> we imported that to a group of hospitals. We trained 11,000 doctors, nurses, and staff that within 10 feet to make eye contact, smile within five feet to say hello. Now, we got some pushback from some of the doctors. They said, you hired me to save people's lives and make you a ton of money. Don't tell me how to walk up and down the hallway. I'm not doing your stupid smiling initiative from HR. So we said, you don't have to. But we're socialized to reciprocate, right? So if someone says hello to you in the elevator, you don't slam up against the side of the elevator. <laughs> Right? You usually say hello and then pull out your phone. What we've been finding.
what we've been finding is that not only were the doctors, nurses, and the staff all doing this, but the patients coming into the hospital, they never consciously were taught the 10-5 way. It's not posted anywhere. No one had to tell them anything. But when they walked into those buildings, they were unconsciously learning a new social script. They were learning, within this building, I'm supposed to treat people as if they're human beings. And what happens is not only do they uh, reciprocate, they initiate a social script they never consciously learn. Within 10 feet, making eye contact, smiling, within five feet, saying hello. Now, that'd be a cute story about how hospital hallways change, but happiness is an incredible advantage. And what we found is six months later, the number of unique patient visits to the hospital rose dramatically. The likelihood of patients to refer that hospital based upon the quality of care they received skyrocketed. That's the most important metric at a hospital. And the doctor's engagement levels, their happiness, highest in a decade. That was a one-second free behavioral change that ended up not only in better quality care, but improving the levels of happiness there and more people being cared for. What I asked this community is, what if we had more than one second? For if a pessimist walked into that hospital, they're going to leave having had a better time there, but they still leave as a pessimist. Could, in our interactions with us, could we get somebody to change somebody who is a genetic default pessimist into a lifelong optimist? Lifelong default optimist. Sounds incredible. That's exactly what the research has shown us. I spent 12 years at Harvard studying happiness. I was actually at the Divinity School before getting into this, studying Christian and Buddhist ethics. And one of the ways that we define happiness, which I think is so important, is we didn't define happiness as pleasure, which is so quick and so short and it's over. We define happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. If you're taking notes, write that one down because that's important. <laughs> happiness is the joy you feel moving towards your potential. Joy is something you can experience even when life is not pleasurable right? Even in the midst of a long run when your legs are burning, you can still feel joy. You can feel it working long hours of project or waking up at one and two and three in the morning with a little one-year-old named Leo. You can still feel joy even with not high levels of pleasure. And even in the midst of childbirth, you can have high levels of joy even when it's not a pleasurable experience. What we've been finding is people are ha afraid of happiness. They're afraid of happiness because they think we'll stagnate or we'll be blind. That if I'm happy now, I won't keep fighting as hard. If I'm happy now, I won't push as hard to make a better world. That's what pleasure does. Joy does the exact opposite. Joy makes us want to invest more deeply in the people around us. It makes us want to learn more about our communities. It makes us want to be able to find ways of being able to make this a better external world for all of us. And as we started doing all this research, we found some pretty incredible things. First of all, your external world, not a great predictor of happiness. I spent 12 years working at Harvard. 80% of those Harvard students go through work debilitating depression. 10% of them contemplate suicide over the previous year. Those are statistics, but all of them are human beings. But, but, and it was heartbreaking watching people with so much potential lose connection to meaning in their life. Now that I've, I've traveled to 51 countries doing this research, I now realize that story had nothing to do with Harvard. It had nothing to do with privileged Ivy League students in America. The story has to do with every single human brain in the world as we contemplate the connection between happiness and success. If we think we have to be successful to be happy, all we have to do is to think about all the times that formula hasn't worked. Every time we've been successful in the past, we just change the goalpost of what success looks like, right? But find some way of becoming happier now, we get an incredible advantage. Creativity triples, and our intelligence rises. Productivity improves by 31%. You're 40% more likely to receive a promotion. You're 39% more likely to live to 94. Literally every educational and business outcome improves when we choose happiness first. And what you've been doing is practicing that. What we've been finding in this research is that these small two-minute positive habits are transformative. We found that around a dinner table, getting a, a, uh, a child with genes for pessimism to think of three new things that they're grateful for, turns out around the dinner table, you think of three new things you're grateful for, you could take a, a default 
pessimistic genetic child and turn them into a lifelong default optimist. Three minutes around, or three things you're grateful for around a dinner table. 80-year-old men, 80-year-old men, you do the same thing with them. 21 days of doing these positive habits, which is why we created the O course to be 21 days to create these positive habits. What we found is 21 days later, these people would practice pessimism a whole life. They're suddenly testing as low-level optimists, and the pattern continues. You get gratitude's good for you. That's not what the science is showing us. The science is showing us something uh, incredible. It's showing us that we could, I would have never believed this before, but you can trump your genes and your environment in two minutes a day. That's why this, this is incredible. That's why we're breaking that tyranny that for so many people, that seems incredible. The other things we've, we know is write, journaling about a positive experience each day for two minutes a day. Just think of one positive experience. You're going to have a million of them today. One positive experience, you write on a napkin or write into your phone. Turns out, you just stamp that memory as meaningful. Your brain can't tell the difference between meaning and experience, so you just doubled it. And your brain connects the dots for you. We did this with the National MS Society. With people with chronic neuromuscular disease, you do this, you journal about positive experiences for six, for six weeks, six months later, we can drop your pain medication by 50%. It's amazing. This is why we add the science to what you've already been doing, because it validates this, because oftentimes we just need a different language to talk to those, our, our children or resistant spouses or, or bosses or coworkers. It gives us a different language that they might not be able to hear in our language how happiness is a choice, but as soon as you start talking about the research or the science, they might be able to hear loud and clear the very things that are going to lead them to the things you've already discovered. So part of what we're doing is doing this research for that very reason. We found 15 minutes of fun exercise a day is the equivalent of taking an antidepressant. As Deepak talks about, two minutes of just uh, quieting yourself and just watching your breath go in and out, meditating for two minutes a day, at Google, we found we can increase their levels of happiness, dramatically drop their stress, and their accuracy roots improve, um, improve by 10%. And the final one, the most powerful and the last thing I want to say today is my favorite one, which I, would, I want to charge all of you to do today. At some point, you're going to pull out your smartphone. Very first time you do, write a two-minute positive email or text message praising or thanking one person who's not here today. Two-minute positive email is going to create a ripple effect for all the people who didn't get to come here today, right? Two-minute positive email, if you're watching this later on, Write it now, a two-minute positive email praising or thanking one person you know. If you do this for the next three days in a row, you'll literally get addicted to it because you're going to spend all day long thinking about how amazing you were for writing that email in the morning. <laughs> you're like, I'm the type of person who does this stuff. And you get great emails back because they don't know about this two-minute maximum rule, so they keep writing about how great you are. But 21 days later is the real value. If I ask you about your social connection, if I ask you about the breadth, depth, and meaning of your social relationship, your score is off the charts. Social connection that you're creating here, that you create with other people, social connection is the greatest predictor of long-term happiness we have. It trumps everything else we do. And we just found, this is my favorite statistic and last one, we just found that social connection is as predictive of how long you will end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. We fight so hard against the negative and we forget to tell people how powerful a two-minute positive habit could be within their lives. All of this research we've been doing actually comes down to three conclusions. Happiness is a choice, happiness spreads through that wireless mirror neuron network, and happiness is an incredible advantage within our lives. But the deep message is change is possible. Scientifically, happiness is a choice. We have hope within our lives. But all of this is great. Having all of this knowledge is wonderful. But where I wanted to conclude with a tip of a hat to one of my heroes, Rob Bell, is that we can have 
We can, have, we can fathom all the mysteries in the world and have all the knowledge, but if we do not have love, if we do not have love, we're nothing. If we speak with the tongues of angels and men, but do not have love, we're a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong. So as we add this into our lives, we do it with love to help the people who are currently unhappy to not shame them for where they are, but show them that hope is possible within their lives. I went through two years of depression while I was at Harvard. I was on a bathroom floor at one point where breathing and living hurt. And now, thank you, thank you to Oprah, I'm, I'm on stage getting to talk with these incredible people about how happiness is actually a choice within our lives. So I want to say thank you to you, Oprah, and I want to say thank you to you. I love you. I love you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>